And welcome back, everyone, to yet another edition of Going for Two, presented by our good friends at Home Field Apparel. I am your host for today and uh, just about every other day we do this. Matt Brown, I'm the publisher of the Extra Points newsletter. I am joined here by my colleague, Brian Fisher of the D1 Ticker Extended Universe. And we have a special guest here continuing our conference preview series. We are excited to talk some G5 football today. And Brian, who are we going to bring on that knows this world better than we do? Well, literally nobody knows this this world better than, than Chris Vanini of The Athletic, a, a, a multi-part guest here. We you might need, need to give him a punch card. Uh, perhaps he can get some, some little apparel uh, <laughs> if, if he get, makes it for 10 shows or something like that. But, uh, I mean, Chris literally covers uh, the, across the country. Uh, this is the, the bulk of college football. You know, like the, these are the programs that you know, really are, are about the fabric of the sport. And I, I'm excited to talk to him because there's a lot of intrigue around, you know, the group of five, I think, nowadays. Not just in terms of college football realignment, but like actually on the field, you have great stories like, you know, UTSA's rise uh, recently. You have new coaches in, in places like UConn and, and UMass that that need are, that are struggling, that, that want to kind of build up their program. I, I think the Sun Belt is, is one of the most fascinating leagues in terms of, you know, actually watching the product on the field and how some of these games are going to play out, especially in that East division. So, um, you know, a lot of intrigue around the group of five and uh, excited to get into it with Chris. I, I am too. He follows the nitty gritty and throughout several of these conferences uh, at, at a level that, but that we, we don't. Uh, I'll have to send him some fart monster stickers, I think, afterwards here. That's the closest thing we have to any kind of merch to hand out. But yeah, again, we want these preview series to be maybe a little bit more focused on on the field than most of what we talk about. If, if all you want off the field, brother, we got a newsletter here you're going to love. Um, but you can't really talk about G5 football right now without also talking about television and about realignment and about NIL and administrative stuff. So that's certainly definitely a part of this conversation. Uh, let's kick it to uh, Mr. Benini right now and see if we can learn a little bit more about what's going on with a good you know, half of, uh, of FBS next, uh, this coming season. Uh, Chris, thanks so much for taking some time to chat with us here this afternoon. I'm sure you're an exceptionally busy guy right now, given just the, the, all the preview content that you have to crank out for, for the athletic. I mentioned this is kind of a tricky time with you and you sit back and realize like, all right, who has actually updated their official roster projections on their website? Like who has forgotten to do that? Because with so much attrition, it can be hard to remember, but who does ball state have coming back again? Right. Yeah, I, I mean, not not only who is transferring where, but wait, this guy was a third year freshman last year. How exactly did that work? You still got the COVID stuff to figure out. Normally, I, you, all of us spend July doing that because there's nothing going on in July. But we once again had an eventful July in college football. So now August is not the time where I'm finally starting to get into that with conference previews yeah. and everything. While while fall camp is is literally already or the, not yes. fall, the the last camp is already happening, it's hard to think of anything as fall when you go outside and it's like ninety two degrees. Um, yeah. Let me ask you a relatively like easy, I guess an easier question for the high level casual that has not been paying attention for the last couple of months. Last year, very clearly, Cincinnati was your class of the G five. Went to the college football playoff, sent multiple guys to the first round of the NFL uh, NFL draft. An excellent team a team that is also replacing a lot of important uh, production. The common estimation here is that they're likely to take some uh, a step back. Do you view the Bearcats as still the team to beat for the high-level G5 position, or do you think that whether that's Houston or potentially somebody in another league uh, enters the season as in, in pole position? I go with Cincinnati just because it's been more than two years since they lost a conference game. And even though they lost as much as they lost, they kept Luke Fickle. 
They kept a lot of that staff. And they've been recruiting like a power five team. I mean, if you look what they're recruiting is, it's been in like the 40s, you know, most yeah. years. So there is more depth there than you would find on a typical group, group of five team. Cincinnati got the most uh, first place votes in the AAC media poll, but Houston actually edged them for first place by one single point. So they're really kind of the 1A, 1B, I think, in that in that conference. And as a result, the group of five, that New Year's Six spot in general, because the American is most often the league that gets that spot. Do you think that there's anybody outside of the American that on, on paper in the beginning deserves to be in that conversation? I know like we, we can, you know, get more specifics here, but the high end of the Mountain West seems to have fallen off a little bit relative to its peak maybe three or four years ago. Is there a Lafayette or a Boise or San Diego State that's close to the Cincinnati-Houston level? You know, I, I look the Mountain West has a few potentially, but that but that league has been so deep that they kind of eat themselves a little bit. You know, like San Diego State won 12 games last year, um, but they lost in the Mountain West Championship to, to Utah State, who should also be pretty good. Fresno State's got Jake Hanner back. They'll be really good. Does Boise bounce back? So the Mountain West has a few options, but they kind of tend to just all beat each other. And I'm curious about uh, Appalachian State and the Sun Belt. That's the team to watch in the Sun Belt. They've got still a pretty loaded team uh, from where they've been. They've been a top 25-ish team now for the last handful of years. They open with North Carolina at home. So, you know, if you can get a Power 5 win like that early on, it helps. So, you know, the Sun Belt is a conference that has not gotten the New Year's Six spot. Um, So maybe App State is a team that can do that. It's interesting you mentioned App State. There, you know, a lot of these Sun Belt schools they, they've gone through some coaching turnover. Uh, I, I'm curious, with some new faces around the league, has that changed their profile at all, or, or is this still going to be a lot of the, the usual suspects that we see in this conference race? I think this year it's going to be the, the the usual, with of course the new faces that have entered the league. I mean, we, we expect App State to be good. Louisiana, simply by being the only maybe decent team in the. West Division should be all right again. They've recruited very well under Billy Napier. And Coastal Carolina kept Jamie Chadwell and Grayson McCall. They got to replace just about everything else. But those have been the three teams at the top of the league. I think, But I think Marshall is a team that can get in the mix. I think Georgia State's a team that can get in the mix. So that's another league that has gotten a lot deeper over the last few years. You know, speaking of coaching transitions and and, and, uh, and change over here, the internet has completely ruined my sense of time, especially given how eventful I feel like May, June, and July were. So leading into this conversation, I'm re- I was realizing I don't remember off the top of my head who's a new coach in in, in this league. You kind of it, it seems like the the uh, hot seat cycle was six years ago for yeah. some of these places. Yeah. Is there a particular G five program that's bringing in a new leader? Um, that you are most interested in? Not necessarily the one that's going to win the most games in year one, but the one where you think, like, you know, this person's fit and their roster and their scheme is most intellectually interesting to me. Uh, SMU, because, you know, they've been a solid team, top 25 team the last few years. Sonny Dykes obviously raised them to a certain level. He goes over to TCU, and in comes Rhett Lashley. He was the offensive coordinator who helped Sonny Dykes build SMU up into what it was. And frankly, I think the offense was a little bit better with him running it, uh, you know, before he left for Miami, you know, turned Tyler Van Dyke into a pretty decent quarterback. So Rhett Lashley is a guy who's been 
ready for a head coaching job for a long time. I think like he is a very organized, you know, got everything planned uh, type of guy. And he's made a, a lot of adjustments and changes even since he got there. You know, recruiting has, has picked up even more. Uh, they're doing a yeah. lot of stuff with former players and stuff like that. So he comes in, they've got Tanner Mordecai, really good quarterback, maybe the best quarterback in the American. And some transfers went out, some transfers came in. So I'm really interested in what Rhett Lashley could do at SMU because I don't think there's going to be a drop-off. And frankly, if they don't collapse at the end of the year like they have the last few years, that becomes a team that could suddenly compete for the conference. With, with that opening up a little bit, sure. It, 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 his career arc is so fascinating because I'm, I'm old enough to remember. I've been doing yeah. this for a minute that like five years ago when he was in his you know early mid-30s, he was the next it guy, right? Like this was this was the next Tom Herman. And then he ends up at UConn and everyone's like, what the hell? Like, you know, it, it's, you know, he's, that's only there for a year, kind of, you know, went under the radar a little bit. Now he's resurfaced and you're right. It seems to be at a place that... I don't want to say turnkey, but like that's not a rebuilding job by, by any means, especially given their ability to be aggressive with with, uh, with 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 transfers. You expect that to maybe be a little bit smoother than maybe some attrition in the Mountain West or in Conference USA. Yeah, I mean, SMU's got access to talent. They were doing the transfer thing before the portal even existed. So, you know, like yep. they've had that in place. And yeah, Red's had an interesting, interesting career. You know, he was with Gus Malzahn forever and while he was at Auburn with him, Gus would give him the play calling, then kind of take it away, then give it back, then kind of take it away. And then eventually Rhett was just like, I got to go do my own thing. And apparently UConn was the place to do that. He spends one year there, then comes back, goes to SMU for two, off to Miami and back to SMU. So, yeah, it's been an interesting path that UConn spot really kind of sticks out uh, randomly. But, yeah, SMU is a, a, a job that is positioned to succeed now and especially succeed, you know, once the – three teams leave the conference, probably the best job in the league at that point. And, and you can throw on top of that the NIL uh, aspect, which I, I know you've reported on a little bit in terms of some of their collectives. But it, it, it's an interesting time for really SMU and a lot of those kind of group of five programs in the state of Texas. Obviously, a ton of success at UTSA uh, recently, you know, right down the road. There's, you know, Baylor in the Big 12 you know, just coming off a, a title, $200 million at uh, Texas Tech in terms of these renovations for them. Uh, UTEP, one of their best seasons in, in really forever, it seems like. Uh, are, are you surprised outside of maybe Texas State kind of kind of bringing up the rear there that the, the entire state of Texas has been able to support football at, at this kind of level, um, not even getting into the way Texas A&M is recruiting, Texas uh, obviously moving to the SEC. Are, are you kind of surprised at how so many programs right now, even at the group of five level, are so good uh, around the state? Yeah, I, I think you just have a lot of really good coaches in place. I mean, Jeff Trailer done a remarkable job in two years there at UTSA, and he turns down, you know, Texas Tech to stay at UTSA and sign a 10-year contract with a pretty big buyout that'll keep him there for at least a couple of years. That's enormous for that program as they move into the American. You know, SMU, again, was built up on our study. Sunday Dykes, who did a good job, he goes over to TCU. Uh, Dana Dimmel's done a really methodical job of building UTEP back up from being the absolute bottom of FBS into kind of being a respectable program at this point. North Texas rallied to win five games in a row last year to finish six and six, probably a hot seat job coming into this year, but there's just a really good group of coaches who understand, you know, what kind of talent is in the state. And a lot of them just primarily recruit in Texas where I live. And as a result, you can, you can do a pretty good job there. You know, on that note, 
one of the other schools in Texas that's not going to be FBS this season, but will be soon, Sam Houston, was been one, perennially one of the more successful FCS programs. They're reclassifying. They're in the process of moving up to Conference USA. There's other schools in Texas that would like to follow them. Um, uh, and and we're, we're, we're getting into an era where James Madison's moving up and Jacksonville State is moving up and, and potentially other schools in the next year or two. Is there anybody that stands out to you as a, a school that is particularly well positioned to make that kind of adjustment smoothly? We've seen, you know, Appalachian State do this well, and we've seen Old Dominion and Texas State and plenty of others have really rocky transitions. Is there anybody you think is is well equipped to not fall off the cliff when they suddenly have to add 20 scholarships and uh, some more staffers? I mean, it's definitely JMU, James Madison, to me. Now, I think this year will probably be a bit of a struggle. It was already going to be a transition year. They got a new quarterback they got to figure out. They lost their top defensive player to Texas. They lost their top receiver to South Carolina. So it was already going to be kind of a bumpy transition. So I'm not saying it'll happen this year. But I think overall, JMU was extremely well positioned to do this. They turned down the Sun Belt like 10 years ago. You know, they, they have had opportunities to move to F- FBS yep. before. And – they haven't had a losing season for 20 years. You know, when, when a program that has a winning culture, a winning infrastructure in place moves up, they typically keep winning. That's your Appalachian States. That's your Georgia Southerns. Uh, that's some of the other ones like that. The ones that don't really have much of a history, your old dominions that are a new program. Those are the ones that tend to struggle more. So I do think James Madison has a bright future. Now, being in the Sun Belt East Division with all those really talented teams is going to be a bit of a, a, an adjustment. But I think they've got a lot in place there at JMU to continue to be a solid program at FBS. Uh, well, let me let me talk about that a little bit more specifically because I, I think I think you you were touching on something that's super important at this level, and I know you've had a chance to talk to a lot of coaches and administrators about it. This idea of winning cultures. Because if you look in the MAC, you look in the Sun Belt, you look in at throughout the country. Generally, if you have a coach that kicks ass at this level, you lose them. Billy, you know, you don't get to keep Billy Napier for twelve years if you're Lafayette. Eventually, the SEC is going to take him. If you have, uh, it's it's rare to have a situation like Luke Fickle where you achieve at a very high level and are likely to stay for a while. But even then, you know, if Ryan Day joins the Eagles tomorrow, like Luke Fickle is going to probably go to Columbus. What are some of the things that you've seen? you know, independent of making good coaching hires that define sustainable winning cultures? It would be, is it is it a, a more brick and mortar facility thing? Have you been able to see things that programs have been able to pass down when they've had leadership changes to, to keep things going? What, what, what does that look like? So like with App State, you know, they went from Jerry, uh, Jerry Moore forever to Satterfield. Then he left, Eli Drinkwitz, he left and Sean Clark, and he's still there. And that was three coaches in three years at, at one point. But Appalachian State just has – it has its recruiting profile in mind, and it has stuck to that. And maybe Eli Drinkwitz wasn't around long enough to change it. And that is you find these guys who are incredibly fast, and you convince them that Appalachian State's the place to be. It's not going to be a lot of – parties there's not gonna be a ton of night left the boone is a very fun town but this is what uh, Sean- i was about to say i wouldn't say that there's no parties in well, boone but the sure. way the way sean clark put it to me is like it's not like miami you know it's not like no. some of these other places you got to understand you're pretty isolated up there it's a fun town but it's pretty isolated up there and they've just been able to convince kids for decades now 
that that's a place to go and you're going to succeed if you go there. And it kind of speaks for itself at that point. So you got to kind of know what type of kid you want and you need, because that's a unique job. You know, you got to find the kids that want to stay there and they have found kids who end up staying there and, and doing well. And, and, you know, with James Madison, they were at the FCS level, but they had, you know, they went from, they fired Mickey Matthews. They go to, I think Everett Withers and Mike Houston, and then uh, Kurt Signetti. Now they've had facilities in place. They've had facilities that were, pretty far and above the rest of the CAA. You know, their resources were at a different level at that point because they had been winning for for so long. So sometimes you just have the institutional advantage, depending on where you are too. But other places, it's just it's really just like a culture that continues with each class of players that comes in that it doesn't matter who the coach is. Your colleague, uh, Max Olson, uh, had, had a great piece on The Athletic about the, the transfer portal. And, and a lot of that was focused on kind of movement from the Power Five to the Group of Five and, and vice versa. Uh, I'm curious in your conversations with, with coaches, with administrators uh, around the Group of Five, are, are, are they becoming more like not, not just aware, but but understanding of, of this player movement and how they can maybe take a, take, take advantage of things? We, we mentioned SMU earlier. That's a, a great place where they've gotten those those trickle down uh, transfers in. And it's been a big thing for the program. Is everybody kind of more understanding and and accepting of, of the new kind of landscape now that we're in the kind of that transfer portal era? They're, they're accepting, but I do think most of them are still annoyed by it just because you develop a kid into a pretty good player and then he leaves you. I mean, that's no matter what, that's going to be, that's going to hurt. It's going to make you feel less than. And so a lot of coaches don't like that. And a big part of that is the lack of transfer windows, the openness of which that happens. You know, there are plenty of times I talk to a coach like in June, he's like, Sorry, I was just talking to a kid. We got to keep them from going into the portal, you know, stuff like that. I think I think the timing of it is a big problem. I think the windows would probably help that. But like I did a, you know, I did a group of five reader survey like a month ago. And I said, hey, do you think the transfer portal hurts a group of five? Helps it? Depends on the school. And it was about, it was pretty even each of the answers. Like it's not viewed, I think, as something that's just, tearing apart the group of five and is diminishing it. And it's just going to kill that division. I think they understand that as Max's article showed the vast majority of movement power five transfers are going down and that opens it up for your ability to get kids. You didn't recruit, you didn't get out of high school, the kids that didn't, wouldn't have given you a look. So it changes how you recruit well, because if you're a group of five school, as a four-star player, you're probably not going to get them, but you want to keep up that relationship because if things don't work out a year or two, he's going to be looking for a new home. And he has to, and he wants to come. Maybe he comes back home to where you are. That's where that's what SMU's been doing. You know that that's a way to approach. And I think in the end, people understand the trade-offs. It's just an exhausting amount of work that nobody really wants to do. Uh, which it's just which is justifiable. No, but we yes. don't like it when we have to do a bunch of extra work in our jobs, especially that's you know, spreadsheet related. Um, the dynamic that you've described here, I, I have seen uh, be particularly important for schools that are in urban areas that uh, where there might be more people that actually grew up there that end up going to the Big Ten or the SEC or the Pac-12 and then wanting to come back. Not as many people are, want to or able to come back home to, uh, you know, New Mexico State because that part of New Mexico doesn't produce a whole lot of guys. But San Antonio does and Houston does and, and South Florida does. A lot of those kind of programs are the type of schools that the American is adding to backfill to replace there are three major uh, you know, programs that are leaving with the UCF, Cincinnati, and Houston. I'm curious, you know, big picture here. There's a, 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 a many schools at different stages, I guess, of, of program development that are making this transition. Is there anybody in that kind of new AAC group that you think 
has the best potential to, to, to compete at a higher level, knowing that there's a little bit of a step up in competition to, from uh, uh, Conference USA to Memphis and, and Tulsa and ECU? I think it's UTSA uh, because they are obviously coming off a Conference USA championship. And again, they have their coach locked up for a number of years, most likely. And that program had nothing. I mean, their offices were trailers. There's still not a ton there, but like they opened up a new athletics facility pretty recently that was much needed. I think there's still a lot of potential there that they're tapping into. And look at the crowds that they got for games last year. They had a, they had 45, 50,000, I think, for the Conference USA Championship game when they hosted against Western Kentucky. Like, that's a sign that there's a lot of potential at a place like UTSA. So when you move into the American and Houston's no longer in your conference, you know, something like that, um, I think that makes it one of those places that could, could succeed immediately upon joining the league. Um, let's talk about Conference USA for a second. And I, I do want to talk about the actual on-field product in that league. Um, which is a league that's about to look real different in, in, in a year or two. But I guess before I do that, whenever, you know, uh, national dorks like us, or particularly our audience, when I talk about Conference USA, it, that shifts to the more existential questions. So let me, let me ask you, let's pretend you are now the new commissioner of the conference and you're given a four-year mandate to try and put it in the best position possible. What would be some of your recommendations, knowing that this is very much an entity that's in flux and maybe missing an identity? first thing I do is get all of my games on ESPN. Uh, That TV deal has been an albatross on that conference for a while. Just whether, whatever the money is, it's just, it's so hard to find games. You're on stadium, you're on Facebook, you're on CBS sports network. And you saw it with those three, with those three teams that left and joined the Sunbelt. One of the very first things they said at their press conferences was, Hey fans, you're going to be able to find our games on ESPN or ESPN plus now. Like that, that is so important. There's no identity for the conference because there's no identity with its media partners either. I think that's the first thing I, the first thing I would do. Next thing is you got to expand, obviously. So you got to figure out what exactly you want that to be. And I think you look at a lot of the Texas FCS schools, the Southland schools, the, the WAC schools, because this league is so spread out and it, it less so than it was. You lose old dominion that chops off some of your travel, but you're still adding Jacksonville state. You're adding Liberty, you know? So it's, it's, it's like, it's still kind of all over the place. Their headquarters is in Dallas. I think you, you look at, there are specifics with these schools that may or may not work out, but like your Stephen F. Austin's, you know, some, some of these other ones, what does Texas Rio Grande Valley look like at some point? You know, what does Abilene, that kind of Abilene Christian, what does Tarleton state look like? I think if you, I, I think that would help it kind of form an identity again. And that is just a heavy dose of Texas football. And again, like we said, there's no shortage of players in the state to pull from. So I think those are things I would do. You, you mentioned Liberty there. That, that's a, an interesting test case. What, what, what does joining conference you say do, do for them on the field? Uh, do, does, does it enhance what, what Hugh Freeze has, has been able to do there? And, and is, is he someone that is going to stick around really beyond this season? I wanted to ask about this, too, because on paper, it doesn't seem like they needed to do this. Um, you know, you're operating from a, a position of maybe less desperation than a typical independent. Well, think about what the potential college football playoff future looks like. I mean, you remember when this happened last year, we were thinking, hey, 12 teams, six conference champs, one, at least one group of five. If you're an independent, you got no shot. And I think Liberty is a school that spends at the level that it feels like, hey, we could dominate Conference USA 
maybe get into that conversation as being the New Year's six spot, the college football playoff spot. So I think that was a big part of it. They've been trying to get into a conference forever. They've been offering $20 million to conferences to try to let them in, but nobody wanted to do it. Part of that was because of the politics that are around Liberty and everything that comes with that. But part of it was because Liberty does spend so much money. Are you inviting a team into your conference that's just going to outspend everybody and dominate your conference? And that is what Conference USA pretty much welcomes, I think, at this point, based on everything they lost. They're happy to have a come in and have a school that could be a top 25 team that has a lot of great facilities and stuff like that. And they'll deal with the other stuff that comes with it which kind of brings us to Hugh Freeze and that he'll be there as long as nobody else wants to hire him. And based on things he's done and said in the past, based on things he's said and done recently, uh, that may continue to be the case. Yeah. Somebody, somebody who loves him should take his phone away or, or at least delete Twitter off of the app. Hugh, if you're listening, who you might be, please don't DM me. I don't, I don't want to talk to you. Uh, I'll, I'll go through your SID that if, if I do, but, Real, real ones know what I'm talking about. Um, let's talk about a G5 lead we haven't really had a chance to talk about a whole lot yet, which is the MAC, right? For all the talk about, oh my gosh, Conference USA doesn't have an identity and the American doesn't have an identity and you're sprawling and you're changing a lot, that we know exactly what the MAC is. We know where it is. We know who's in the MAC. We know what we're going to get when we uh, are watching television on a Wednesday night in the middle of, um, of October. Who's good in this league this year? Because we were talking about this off air a little bit, the the gap between like the second or third best MAC team and like the tenth best MAC team, uh, it feels like a crapshoot sometimes. Is there anybody on paper that separated themselves? Yeah, I mean, in a given year, you'll have half the league finish somewhere between five and seven and seven and five. And if you go eight and four, that might be enough to win the conference for you. That that's that's kind of where they're at at this point. And as usual, I think I look at a lot of the teams in the West. Northern Illinois won the conference last year. Toledo is typically one of the most talented teams in that in that league. Central Michigan had the nation's leading rusher. They still have Jim McElwain. They've got a pretty good offensive system. Eastern Michigan's always been pretty solid. Western Michigan's kind of got to reset a bit, but they're always decent. And then in the in the East, you've got Miami of Ohio, probably the favorite. Then a lot of questions around Buffalo and a lot of questions around uh, Kent State. So, you know, it's kind of, it feels like it's going to be Miami versus whoever comes out of the West. But again, Seven and five might win you the division. You know, it's it's always hard to tell. It comes down to three-way tiebreakers and whatnot to figure out who's actually going to be winning that uh, league. It's a lot different than, than, you know, when P.J. Fleck took took him to the Cotton Bowl going 12-0. and That just has not really been the history of that league. Yeah. How long do you think it'll take for Joe Moorhead to turn Akron into something that is interesting to uh, people other than sicko degenerates like us? Well, I mean, it's Mac, it's Mac football and it's Akron, so it's always going to be kind of a part of that. You're going to kind of have to seek it out. I mean, it, it, it remains a stunningly really good hire for Akron, a guy who is a former SEC head coach. Blew us away, yeah. It was like 500. Like, he wasn't even bad there. And so you take over Akron, which is an absolute mess in a lot of ways, not just the football program, but the financial university. situation at the university and all that stuff. So – there's a lot to, to do with, but if you can come in and just like throw the ball around a ton and be a lot of fun, like that's enough to, that could be enough to stand out. Like he doesn't, I'm not saying he, like he doesn't run the air raid and stuff like that, but the Mac could use somebody who just kind of comes out and does stuff like that. And that's kind of what Sean Lewis and Kent state have been. And they've kind of set an identity like that and obviously reached the Mac championship last year. So 
it's in the East Division, so there's plenty of room to go up. You know, it's not like you're you're dealing with everybody else in the West. Yeah, and a lot of folks around Akron excited for for not just what he, he brings to the table, but you know, they, they've got some decent facilities in place. You know, it's it's not you know kind of some of the outposts it's a nice stadium. Uh, that that some of the other Mac schools. So they, they do have some of those built in advantages. But I, I mean that that Akron team last year was was truly one of the worst that that I I can recall seeing on the field at times uh, under under Tom Arth. What are some of the other teams that we can look at at the other end of the spectrum that, that are kind of towards the bottom of, of the FBS and in the bottom of group of five that, you know what, they're, they're struggling right now and maybe they're in line to make a coaching change? Well, that they could still make a coaching change. I mean, what first came, a lot of them made the coaching changes. Yeah. I mean, FIU made a change. UConn made a change. UMass made a change. I mean, Matt, you obviously went New to New Mexico that, State. Yeah, New Mexico State. You obviously went to that UConn-UMass game last, last year. Uh, yeah, that I'm, was I'm, awesome. I'm, I'm interested in UConn, like with what Jim Moore did there. Like he wasn't bad Me at UCLA. Too. Like he was like pretty solid there. And he's, he feels rejuvenated. He really wanted to get it back into coaching. And look, that's obviously a very difficult job. It's an independent. There's only so far you can go. But a couple of years ago, they had the worst defense in the history of college football. So there is room to, to go up. He's hired a pretty good staff there, I think. And, and, I'm I'm really fascinated to see what UConn will do moving forward now that it has somebody in charge who I think is willing to do what it takes to be a college football head coach in 2022. Um, it feels like <laughs> it, it feels like they can finally actually move forward now as a program. I know I'm glad you mentioned that because I I feel a little bit like a crazy person. I think UConn's going to be like they're not going to be good. I don't think they're going to make a bowl game, but like. Could you come win four games relatively quickly? Like I don't think that that's crazy. They brought in transfers from Alabama, from BC, from Boise, from Kentucky, from Penn State. They have uh, recruited a couple of players that other FBS institutions actually wanted, uh, which is I, I know that that's, that sounds like I'm, I'm being a jerk, but like that, honest to God, wasn't really the case over the last two seasons. They were really competing more with Colonial athletic teams. Um, and it's not like the schedule's that hard. Like, yeah, when they play with the body bag ACC game, they're going to get thrown into a dumpster. But they were so young these past couple of years. You have to think they have to get a little bit better. I, I feel like the path to respectability, to garden variety badness, rather than Matt Brown buys a ticket to come watch us bad, I think that that's way more clear at UConn than it is at UMass. Yeah. Where yeah. I, I get why they hired Don Brown. I understand the thought process behind it it is harder for me to look at what I saw, even though they won that game. And uh, you know, from what I saw, it's like what they have to do to win five games. You know what I mean? Well, let me ask you, I mean, let me ask you this. I'm curious your thoughts. Cause like conference USA would love for UConn to come as a football only member. You know, they had those conversations last year. UConn doesn't want to do it. Every time I bring it up, I think they should do it. Every time I bring it up, the fans hate it, you know, so they really don't want to do it for whatever reason. I don't, whatever. UMass would love to get in as a football only member in conference USA has been kind of like, eh, not really. So it's kind of like, it's kind of like reverse. I mean, do you think, do you think UConn would football would benefit by joining conference USA? Cause I know I, 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 I personally don't. And I'll, and I'll, and I'll tell you why I, and if by benefit, do we mean, would they have an easier pathway to the curable or something? Yes. But it's, it's a little bit different. Cause if you're a UConn football fan, you probably remember the Fiesta bowl. And if not that you remember competitively being against West Virginia and against Pitt and, and against against these other programs, and for all of the faults of UConn football, of which there have been several, um, you know, the way that's been explained to me by fans and people that work there is like, 
we're a basketball school. And we don't need to necessarily jump through a bunch of hoops to make an extra $800,000 in football. By playing this schedule, we can play against schools that our fans care about and that we can, you know, with a, the week, we can have a competitive stadium environment. And so if you are going to remove games against UMass, remove games against ACC opponents, remove games against BC or Temple or Army or Buffalo, and exchange them for games against FIU or Western Kentucky or UTEP, which no UConn fan would ever give a shit about, um, to be to 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 and kind of diminish your your brand a little bit. I get why they wouldn't want to do it. UMass doesn't have that same football tradition, and yeah. they don't have some of those same built-in rivalries, or and they don't have UConn men's or women's basketball. Kind of, right. you know, over overhang everything. UMass got a hell of a hockey program. They're good at a bunch of other things, but I understand why that thought process is is different. I mean, if I was a football player, I could see why I would want to be in Conference USA. But I understand why Dave Benedict might feel different. My thing with it is just like independence feels like purgatory at this point in college football. And like you talk, I mean, you, I mean, you remember when BYU, you know, being an independent for so long, and sure it's do. Like, you you don't have. We don't even believe in purgatory, you, and we were in purgatory. Yeah. <laughs> There you go. You don't have, you know, conference player of the week stuff to try to win. You don't have player of the year stuff. You're not following the standings week to week. You're just less engaged. And look, if UConn was, yeah. if if you look at UConn's schedule, if they were solely playing a Northeast schedule, if they were playing Temple, BC, uh, Penn State, UMass, all these teams every single year, then I'd agree. But their schedule is still full of games that are on the other side of the country or way down in Florida and stuff like that. It wouldn't change their schedule that much to me i just feel like yes it is a basketball school that's that's the most important thing obviously i just feel like there's nowhere for football to go that you can ever be like super invested in it as a fan like yeah you might play bc every every once in a while but like is that you know i don't know i feel like feel like i would want more than that but that's just me the yukon fans overwhelmingly disagree with me and i acknowledge that I mean, it, it could be a decision that's kind of made for them in terms of when we're looking at bowls, you know, that, that, you know, you might get five and seven SEC teams going to bowl games down the road. And you know what? That kind of yeah. crowds them out to where they almost have to join a conference so they can get some of those tie ins, things like that. Same CFP access. I mean, we've, we've talked about that as well. Just getting the revenue from some of those CFP. I, I don't think anybody's cut from the CFP when that expands is cutting UConn, a, a sweetheart deal like Notre Dame gets. So, um, but, but I do want to kind of get onto another independent in, in Army. Uh, we, we've seen them have some success quite a bit of success these last couple of years uh you know they, they lost the, the game against navy i i feel like that that always kind of clouds their season but um you know what, what's the future like for, for army and, and are, are the black knights going to get get back to more of that uh, double digit win territory yeah i i mean you know jeff mockin was obviously you know up for illinois and i think kansas maybe a couple years ago but, but he stuck around he's done just an incredible job there really and army football it's you know, like they've stayed independent, you know, they haven't joined a conference, you know, even when given overtures. And generally the sense I've gotten there is they want to have a decent overall record. You know, they play two FCS teams typically, and you got to beat you got to beat Navy and Air Force. That's pretty much it. Like there aren't, there aren't like, we got to get to an amazing bowl game and stuff like that. You know, the service academies go to those service academy military bowls anyway. Um, but they've had some quarterback change the last couple of years. It should be another solid team. Once again, I don't have their schedule exactly in front of me, but they're playing air force in Dallas or Arlington again. Um, they're playing, they played last year. They're doing that again in the army Navy game. So they're both uh, neutral sites again this year. And yeah, that, that army Navy 
game last year really changed the the offseason kind of mindsets of both programs because Navy has been down hard, but they won that Army game and like they're feeling good. It, it, I don't know if they're going to be very good this year, but Kenny Machalola told me he's like every time you have a quarterback who beats Army, it it's it skyrockets them like they're so much better the next year because of that, and so that changed it for 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 Navy. Army had a good season, but they lost in Navy. That really, like you said, clouds kind of what the season was. Ultimately, that's the most important thing, what you got to do when you're at Army. Boy, the beginning of Army's schedule for, for this coming season is is tough. I had I had, I had, I had taken a look at it now. It's, it's been a minute subjective, but you've got, you open at Coastal, who uh, will have offensive firepower, albeit mm-hmm. a different kind of roster. You get UTSA at home, who's, you know, sh- should, should be very strong. You get a, a pretty good, CAA team the next week, and then you're playing Georgia State, and you're at Wake. Um, I mean, in a, in a schedule where you're going to be playing a couple FCS teams, and you're typically playing some of the dregs of FBS, um, you could there's still six plus wins there for sure. But um, that's that's a tough one two punch without playing a P five team, no question about it. When you don't yeah. have unlimited depth, I mean, you know, Coastal and UTSA, yeah, that's those are not generally the G fives you want to see on your schedule, no matter who you are. No, not, not even if you're like North Carolina, who I think is scheduling like has something similar this year, or yeah. uh, and, and Georgia Tech has a couple of those games. Like very, very stupid. Yeah. Do not, do not recommend. Yeah. Um, let, me, let me get you. I, I, I don't have a whole lot left here, but I, I we, we've talked a lot here about teams. We've talked a lot about about realign, about moving around and, and and future projections and everything. Who are you most excited to watch this year, like as a player? I'm really interested to see what well, one is Clayton Toon, the Houston quarterback. I think he kind of doesn't get enough love and attention in general. I think he's going to have a massive year uh, down at Houston and Grayson McCall, you know, two time Sunbelt player of the year. He's going to be really fun again, but I'm also really, really curious to see who wins the UCF quarterback battle because that team is loaded at the skill position with receivers and running backs you know, they were banged up with injuries last year. Is it going to be Mikey Keene, who took over as a retro freshman when Dylan Gabriel got hurt? Or is it going to be John Rice Plumley, the former Ole Miss running quarterback turned wide receiver, who's now back at quarterback, kind of generally fits what you think of when you think of a Gus Malzahn offense? Because we you've had up and down Gus Malzahn teams, you know, going back to Auburn. Sometimes the good teams are the ones that didn't have a great quarterback. You know, I think about Nick Marshall, you know, going to the championship game and stuff like that. So, if UCF can figure out who that quarterback is, they could be in for a big, big year once again and kind of get back to what we think of UCF being recently. Um, I, I think there's one last thing I think I want to want to make sure I ask you about here while I've got you on because I think my readers will yell at me if if uh, if we don't. Do you envision any or do you think any any FBS G5 realignment is likely? And say like the next two years with with Texas and Oklahoma, we had a, a very significant spillover effect that we you know I've written touched all the way down to D two. It doesn't look like that's immediately the case here for USC or UCLA. Do you expect Conference USA or the Mountain West or the Sun Belt to pull the actually pull the trigger on anybody in the next eighteen to twenty four months? Well, Conference USA we do just because they're going to be at nine members, you know, by next year, and obviously you're going to need something out of that. But other than that, I'm not. I don't really think so. The Mountain West, it depends if Boise State and San Diego State are still around in the conference because, you know, they could have expanded last year. There were people in Conference USA who said, hey, we'd rather, you know, told me we'd rather go to the Mountain West than go to the American. We think it's a better fit. But the Mountain West 
was ultimately decided not to expand. Part of it was because they were told, hey, you know, like you're not going to get any more TV money. You're going to cut down on your per school payouts with that. So they opted not to do it. Um, so they're obviously not itching to expand unless they absolutely have to. The American is up to 14 teams soon. So there's probably not much more happening there. Keith Gilt, the Sun, Keith Gilt, the Sun Belt said that they've kept the door open to expansion. But my sense from talking to people in that league is that it's nothing really imminent. It's just kind of if something pops up, you know, like some schools, you know, like Western Kentucky and Middle Tennessee and Louisiana Tech were on the radar last year, but ultimately opted not to do it. And the new expanded TV deal with ESPN that the Sunbelt got essentially is, from what I'm told, making every school whole what they were before they expanded. So like, you know, you expand, you add some more teams that kind of cuts down on what you're making per school. This new ESPN deal basically gets everybody back up to where they were. So I don't think that there's really any move they can make that's going to help that TV money situation again. So they feel pretty good where they're at. So I don't see a ton of group of five realignment happening. Most of it happened last year, and that's most of what could happen. So other than conference to say adding a couple schools, maybe um, I don't see it a, a ton. Well, I, I will at least bring it about back around to the, to the on-field aspects and, and really fire up your Twitter mentions. I'm sure who, who, who is winning each group of five league and, and, and I guess who, who might end up taking that group of five bid uh, to make the new year six in your opinion. So I, I think the, the new year six comes down to Cincinnati and Houston and everything makes me, everything makes me want to pick Houston. Uh, they don't play, uh, they don't play Cincinnati. They don't play UCF. Cincinnati has to go to SMU. They have to go to UCF. Um, but Cincinnati hasn't lost a game in the American in more than two years. You know, they're, they're, still, they're still Cincinnati to an, to an extent. You know, Dana Holgerson last year was upset that they went undefeated in conference play and had to travel for the conference championship game. Maybe Houston gets that game at home this year, and maybe that's the difference in winning it. So I'm still sticking with Cincinnati just because I got to see them lose before I can pick them otherwise. Uh, elsewhere, the, the Mac is the toughest one. Everybody feel it feels like it should be Toledo's year, but I'm kind of leaning be. toward. I'm yeah. Big year I'm for Jason of, Candle for sure to still win the, the league. Yeah, I, I I'm kind of leaning toward Northern Illinois again just because they were they won a ton of close games last year, but they were also really young. They could in general be a better team. Um, Conference USA, uh, UTSA, I think clear favorite there um uab with the coaching change is kind of uncertain at the moment um mountain west i think boise is going to bounce back uh andy avalos was pretty confident with how the second half of last season went that they figured out what was going wrong last year um so i, I think boise state bounces back wins mountain west and then sunbelt uh appalachian state you know I, I think they're one of the top group of five teams they're loaded at running back and they got they got a freshman kid, by the way, he the true freshman. He rushed for, I think, thirty five hundred yards last year in high school. It was unreal. He's probably not going to play this year. But I just want to say that because that's an insane number to me. They have a ton of good running backs. I think Appalachian State uh, wins the Sun Belt. All right. Well, Chris, we'll, we'll let you out of here on this, folks. You can, of course, find all of Chris's coverage all over the athletic. Chris, where can people find you on Twitter? Just at Chris Vanini on Twitter for everything that you want to read and don't want to read. I tweet a lot. If you want to learn more about wrestling, if you want to learn more uh, about dogs, yes. Um, yes. you should you should follow Chris. Hey, thanks so much for taking some time here this afternoon. We uh, we look forward to talking again later this season.
Sure thing, guys. Uh, really quick before we wrap up here, I do want to take some time um, to talk about our good friends at Home Field Apparel. Normally, when we do the show, I'm wearing something from Home Field, but before we were recording now, I had to go do some other video work, so I'm actually wearing a shirt and tie. Uh, although, 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 in the true spirit of Home Field, also gym shorts. Um, I'm, not, I'm not wearing a suit when I'm doing video. It's, it's summer. I'm in my basement. Nobody, nobody here can check. Um, if you want clothes that embody the ethos of somebody dressing like a serious professional and also like they're about to go play church basketball, might I recommend our friends at Home Field Apparel that sell extremely comfortable, extremely unique, um, officially licensed apparel for uh for for college programs with their vintage logos um if you want to go get something that has a logo from the 1940s or 1950s and you kind of forgot about that it exists you're going to be able to find it there on t-shirts hoodies long sleeve shirts uh, uh some tank tops and even some sweatpants they have been highlighting individual brands for big new saturday the past several weeks i was wearing my northwestern shirt earlier today I bought a Nebraska shirt recently, which is excellent. I know you're you're wearing some home field stuff right now, right? Or uh, there we go. We've got the we got the angry two lane wave, um, which is you know, featured here in, in my office. I'm just off camera over here. Um, this week, they're dropping Penn State, and I saw the preview of the hockey uh, shirt, which this is a very deep compliment from me. It looks completely ridiculous. Some of the Oregon State stuff that they were that they were sharing completely ridiculous in a good way. One of the best collections I think they've ever done was that Oregon State. Yeah. Just the, the the amount, the, the diversity. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the Angry Beaver certainly lends itself to uh, to some great home photo apparel. But I mean, this week with Penn State, I I, I do feel like we could have a potential record uh, in terms of some of the sales that they have on, on Big Noon Saturday, given the size of that fan base and given the appetite for a lot of these Penn State shirts. I cannot imagine. Uh, how crazy they're going to go for, for a lot of these designs because they are fantastic. They are fantastic. You know what? I don't think Connor's listening to this part in the podcast. I want to. I want to. I want to tease something. Could Penn State break the record this week? They really could. Is there maybe one other team involved in Big News Saturday that's coming after Penn State that might be in that conversation too? Yes. My friends, there is, and you don't need to be Encyclopedia Brown to figure out what kind of school I might be invested in that isn't a part of Homefield yet. But don't wait until that school comes out. Spend your money right now. Then use that money and spend it again on other Homefield stuff in a couple of days. Use promo code EXTRAPOINTS at checkout to save 15% off your order. That helps support this show so we can get more money to buy other Homefield things. it moves the money around, right? This is this is how the crypto economy works. This is how the the, the t-shirt economy works. I don't know. I don't listen. I'm not a business guy, right? I'm I'm here to to to, to make tweets and, and newsletters. But somehow that keeps this this operation in business too. Homefieldapparel.com. Look good and uh, give us money so we can do things like buy other shirts ourselves. So I don't have to, you know, dress like this. Um, it was it was a very illuminating conversation. I'm I'm excited to watch multiple uh you know several of these teams i'm excited to watch louisiana this year we didn't even get to talk about very much who i know uh has to replace quite a bit of production but was a very good team at the end of last season i'm excited to see what kind of staying power cincinnati has um i could see this being a year where it's a down year and they go like 10 and 2 and they go into big 12 play returning like their you know a lot of offensive line production and and you know set themselves up to be competitive right away in that league i'm excited to see if boise state can regain what we consider to be Boise State in an increasingly difficult Mountain West where, I, honestly, I think there's only one really bad team in that league. 
um, the the floor at that level of, of that conference has really risen quite a bit. You know, maybe maybe two bad teams. UNLV is probably going to be pretty bad too. Um, there are a lot, a lot of fun storylines, and uh, I'm glad that Chris was able to help break those down for us. Yeah, I mean, we didn't even get into uh, you know Colorado State poaching a coach from uh, you know across the league in Nevada with with Chris there. I mean, it, it, it is an interesting league. And just looking at the Mountain West, I mean, uh, we, we did talk about Air Force a little bit. Very intriguing team, always just given their style of play, and you know you really can't peg them. Oh, they lost X Y Z. You know, they, they end up replacing it somehow. Um, you know, and, and then Troy, Troy Calhoun's name comes up in the in the coaching uh, you know carousel at the end of the year for for some odd reason. So. Every single time. And, but, you know, it's it just, a, uh, again, this is kind of part of the, the fabric of college football. A lot of games that, that are going on. And I, I, I can't wait because I think really outside of, and we kind of got into it with, with Conference USA and their TV deal, outside of maybe that kind of aspect of, of the league, all these group of five games are, are a lot more accessible than, than they really ever have been. And so to be able to sit there on a Saturday or Thursday night or Friday night and, and kind of dive into to some of these uh, big time matchups at this level uh, is, is always a pleasure. Uh, not just focusing on, on those big power five games that have those playoff implications. There's some really good football being played uh, across the country and some really intriguing you know storylines, I think, going into a lot of these leagues in, in the group of five. Yeah. Um, we will have other conference previews coming up very soon. We are going to be talking with a guest about the Big Ten very soon. We have a guest with the SEC very soon. You can find all of that, of course, on this feed. If you enjoy the show, saying positive things about it, and the ratings certainly helps us out a lot. And, of course, support us. The other places we're making stuff, whether that's on Collegiate Sports Connect, where Brian's making a gajillion videos, including an extremely important one about Mississippi State's baseball stadium, where you can bring... A goddamn refrigerator with you to to a game, which is just proof that this is a truly tremendous country. Um, You can also, of course, uh, follow my work at Extra Points, which is at www.extrapointsmb.com for uh, information about everything from Division II streaming wars to conference realignments to what's happening in the NIL marketplace. I think it's everything. So I will catch up with you very soon and with the rest of you, dear listeners, in your uh, phone devices and in your cars in just a couple of days as well. We'll see you on the internet.